Who Cares About Watchmen? Episode 5. Little Fear of Lightning. This week, like usual, we have uh, myself, Ingiga, from England, which is the land of Alan Moore, who had his birthday on Monday. So, you know, happy birthday, Alan. We have both Neo and Tom Tit from Australia, which was the setting of some episodes of The Leftovers. And we have Broken Mirrors from Watchmen's nominal setting, America. All four of us having read and enjoyed the 80s Watchmen comic. Uh, the Commonwealth ones among us having enjoyed Watchmen showrunner Damon Lindelof's previous HBO show, The Leftovers. And Mirrors having an episode uniquely geared towards him this week, given its very persistent motif of Mirrors and their being broken. The episode we're going to discuss today was a tradition for Lindelof's shows in being focused all around a single character's point of view. In this case, the masked cop slash market research psychologist Looking Glass. We opened in 1985, covering the squidly devastating ending of the comic from a very ground level perspective, where a young, devoutly Christian Looking Glass was misled in a hall of mirrors by a girl who stole its clothes. Then the giant monstrous squid materialized in New York, sending out a shockwave, killing millions. Decades later, Looking Glass is scarred and paranoid from that incident, wearing hats and masks of reflective material to try and stave off psychic interference, obsessively performing shelter routines for squid falls, and leading recovery meetings for those scarred by the squids, even while he's still deep in trauma himself. He's tricked into finding a base for the 7th Cavalry, the Rorschach mask-wearing cult, where Senator Joe Keane Jr reveals himself as their leader, before showing Looking Glass proof that Ozymandias, Adrian Veidt, Jeremy Irons, faked the giant squid to try and achieve world peace, which he succeeded at doing. Ozymandias, meanwhile, turns out to have been imprisoned on one of Jupiter's moons, where he finally succeeds in spelling out, save me, with the limbs of corpses, to an onlooking satellite. Looking Glass, now under the thrall of Senator Keane's manipulations, sells out Sister Knight, who confesses to covering up parts of the police chief's murder. As she's arrested, she downs her grandfather's pills of nostalgia, drugs that contain and preserve an individual's memories. Yeah, so what do we all think of this episode? My main takeaway from it is that Zack Snyder is a fucking hack. Hmm? Because I seem to recall a whole lot of hoopla about how you could never put a giant squid on camera that would look ridiculous. Oh, right. <laughs> oh man, it was so vindicating to see that. Which is odd, because being vindictive is bad, but being vindicated is good. If anything, I don't think they went far enough with the squid. I think it could have looked even more vibrant and weird. Same. Yeah. But, you know, we did see just the aftermath of it. We didn't see it popping in. I like to imagine that there were probably all sorts of weird colors, like out of the um, immaculate uh, Gibbons artwork. Yeah, I was just shocked that we actually got to see it at all, so I think the color palette is like more of a concession to the medium of television than anything. I think like some more psychedelic Gibbons colors would have been cool, but yeah. I was just like, my jaw was on the ground at that point, honestly. Talk about those like 2009 versus 2019 memes, it's like 10 <laughs> yes. years ago. You, you couldn't put that in a movie theatre and now it's like on HBO for all to see. It's amazing. Neo, go ahead and mock up a meme format for that. 
Yeah, I think with the the squid thing, I think it's almost it's not just about the kind of visual strangeness of the squid, the squid itself. I think with um, Zack Snyder omitting it from his film, you've got the fact that in the book, beyond just the squid's appearance, you've got the whole current of weirdness that leads up to the squid. You've got the island full of artists. You've got Max Shea, the novelist. You've got all of these kind of little things and. I mean, I, okay, I can't speak authoritatively on this, I have not even watched the film, but um, I get the sense that in kind of condensing it for a cinematic audience, the the tone of the film is maybe geared a bit more gritty, perhaps, yes, than the novel. Yes, absolutely. So that's, it's that kind of current of it that leads to the squid kind of not materialising, because to, to do the squid, <laughs> you have to do all the setup for the squid. And yeah, yeah, pun unintended there. Whereas with the TV show, so the the, the weirdness and the humour of it is so foregrounded from the get go that the squid is just a natural fit, isn't it? Yeah, like in the in the book, the um, entire uh, or sorry, in the in the film, the entire aspect where uh, Doctor Manhattan has caused an increase of uh, you know electrical efficiency is actually pushed into the narrative of the film, and that's set up to the uh, grand explosion at the end, rather than being you know, a background detail that ties in with all the uh, weird technology. A lot of that um, sits oddly in the final product because the um, the substitution for the squid came about in David Hayter's original script, which was set in the 2000s. Uh, and so when Snyder got it moved back to the 80s, uh, a lot of stuff was left in that I think sits oddly, like Ozymandias' climate change concerns and some of the manhattan energy stuff but um yeah if, if they were going to go that direct with embracing the comic visually it's it was a bad choice not to do the squid and i think that's very much apparent now speaking of uh being vindicated and indeed being vindictive i fucking knew that tobacco was illegal in this universe i knew it i predicted it on this very podcast four episodes ago, and you cut it out, you goddamn cowards. <laughs> uh, but actually, I was just wondering, what if it's... What if we're looking at it backwards? What if, like, in our world, they have, like, smoking bans or whatever, but their tobacco restrictions are far greater? What if it's snuff, and that's, like, the only way you can do it? Or it's illegal, and because he's a cop, you can get away with having it. Cause I don't, I don't remember seeing anybody smoking, so I don't know, it's a lot. I remember that in uh, the book, uh, people were using hookahs again, but that might have just been at that one time. Well, I can, it's the sort of thing you can kind of you can kind of almost guess it's the kind of thing that they ban, isn't it? Because this is such, this is that sort of setting where there's been all this, this regulation of stuff. Yeah, and you've got, yeah, you've got like, endless trigger warnings before shows and stuff, and tobacco being banned, yeah, I mean, it makes me wonder what the situation is with alcohol as well, another sort of, I mean, I wonder if they've got vapes in this universe, I doubt it somehow. But yeah, no, that, that's uh, quite a nice detail, lots of really good world-building stuff in this episode. They had some really groovy-looking, like, pipes in the book, I distinctly... Yep. I, um, I have to recant now, originally, uh... In like the first three episodes, I've been telling people uh, you probably should read the comic because like the third episode leans hard on a lot of comic things. I was telling you know some people we know 
you should really read the comic before episode three because episode three clarifies a lot of white stuff and you're gonna be lost um but after this one i kind of pull back on that a bit because the show it took its time but it did explain the comics ending it did realize it pretty comprehensively in the end and i think giving it more space like a lot of white stuff was also clarified more seeing the tape and I, I feel like the show, given more time, is more able to operate standalone than I might have assumed, like a few episodes in. I mean, for my money, I think I would still tell people to read the book first, just because I think the because it's, it's better. The book is better. Yeah, I just well, yeah, the book is better, obviously. <laughs> but also, I think um, if you watch the show first, you're essentially having I don't want to harp on the spoilers thing, but you're having stuff like the squid and Vite's plan delivered to you in a way that's sort of backwards compared to you know the book, which delivers it kind of forwards as it was originally intended. And it's and you know and also like as much as I love the squid sequence in this episode, I think the squid reveal in the comic just cannot be beaten. The, the the way that it goes to full page panels for the first time in the all 12 issues the way just you have this slow incredibly kind of d dire kind of crawl towards the squid itself all the little details you know the characters who you know gr grew to love over the course of the book just scattered around the the floor their corpses like it's it's great so yeah that's actually my bigger issue with the film's changed ending isn't the removal of the squid it's the removal of like the um the lesbians and all the other ground level people that converge at that point in the comic um before getting uh, yeah all killed. that's really in it is uh, uh bernard's and um, uh dr what's his name malcolm long and he's just like walking past it's he's yeah in in the comic it's him um leaving his wife to go intervene with the fighting lesbians because he's embracing the idea that you should try and you know impose positivity upon the world blah 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 it's it's all a foil to exactly what Vite was explaining yeah. at the end of issue 11 it's a really important thematically anyway uh in linking to the ending i think what this episode really did for me was highlight the the uh, the inhumanity of um what ozzy did like that huge complex looking glass and those other people had none of it's real like they're all talking about you know, we have to accept blah, 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 but it, it, it's all fake. Yeah. You know? So all their tra trauma being based like on a joke, it's just, uh, it's disgusting. And seeing that realized on a really personal level through all his neuroses and his life history and stuff, I, I thought it was quite affecting and it really stressed how much of a villain uh, Jeremy Hines is playing. Beautiful line, that weapon is fear and I am its architect. Yes. Reference uh, to the, uh, yeah. <laughs> For those who aren't uh, following, uh, there was an Outer Limits episode, which is basically the plot of Watchmen, except done in like the 60s, I think, wasn't it? Yeah. I believe the comic even references the that episode. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah in the last line. issue. Yeah. And the comics editor resigned because he wanted Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons to change the ending when he saw this because he thought they'd all be seen as hacks for ripping it off and refused because... <laughs> They'd come up with it, you know, independently, and they'd written the first 11 issues, you know, foreshadowing <laughs> it. And so, yeah, the editor resigned, and then decades later, he wrote the Ozymandias run of Before Watchmen. Oh, God. <laughs> 
I think the whole um, post-traumatic squid disorder, as Lindelof put it in yet another one of his um, less-than-tasteful interview quotes, uh, I think the that whole element of this episode is one of the biggest arguments the show has made so far for it being a sequel to the book, because it gets into what the book kind of re- can't really, by na- nature of its structure, which is the idea of um, not just thinking about the moral dilemma of Ozymandias you know, killing you know, a, a shitload of people, but also just... The the, the, the bit that people often don't think about, which is, you know, the trauma that that leaves, and just the, the and, you know, it's like you said, Neo, you know, like, it really emphasises the cruelty, and just the sheer, like, just how really deeply scarring and horrible it is, you know, for people to, to survive that, never mind, you know, being killed by it, you know, you've got people just, I think, I, I said in one of the earlier podcasts that the squid kind of seems to have sent the world a bit insane, and it's just, it's just so emphasised here, and you, you you almost wonder how, you know, Veidt didn't kind of see this coming, like, he didn't kind of, mm. he, you know, he doesn't seem to acknowledge the idea that actually this is going to well, send people completely off the handle. Yeah, you know, there's actually a very wise man named, um, Lex Luthor, who said that Ozymandias' plan was the stupidest thing he'd ever heard. And it's really not hard to see why. I think um, what Jeremy Irons' uh, performance in particular is doing is he, more so than the book, I think, where Ozzy at least projects a kind of warm, fatherly, I know what's best demeanor. Here he's like chewing his words so much, he's so self satisfied in that tape with his plan. He's it's very like. Ozzy. He's very Jeremy Irons-ish. Yeah, it's it's like he's he's figured out the um Lindelofian puzzle box. You know, he's figured out the answer, the the code to the puzzle to, you know, make things better to improve society, and th- it's all very clinical. Like um, yeah, it's it's disturbing. And um, Ozymandias' whole shtick in this new show is he's essentially recreating what he did in the novel by um, using all those corpses of the Phillips and the Crookshanks to. Literally send a message. Yeah. Except he's not trying to save humanity this time, he's just trying to save his own ass. It's like very Yeah, yeah it's a black very traitor. inward directed. I think the whole show in general is a lot more like focused on individual psychologies, whereas the book is more concerned with like very big issue ideological yeah. worldviews sort of stuff. Yeah. yeah, I think the um something the show is better at is characterization. I think. Like in the comic they're all very um I mean they're well realized, but they're very much archetypes, whereas here it's but the comic's more about you know institution and society and that kind of thing. This is much more drilling down on the individual psyches of people, which is what you know television's good at, and Lindelof's kind of shows in particular are good at. Yeah, I kind of I was about to say that like the comic is more didactic, but I'm not sure how true that is because the show has kind of bits and pieces here and there. Um, I noticed uh, one big thing they're doing with uh, Ozymandias in uh, the show is that they've introduced this new element to the law, <laughs> the law, whereby the whole Robert Redford presidency, the whole liberal uh, dystopia, as we're putting it, this whole kind of, uh, not just the squid itself, but the whole course of politics after the squid has also been you know, very much orchestrated by Vite. And that's something that maybe you could maybe guess, you maybe infer it from the book, but it's certainly not like given to you in the book. And it's maybe not even 
isn't something you would even you know assume that you know Vite would do if you just read the book. But it's kind of it's a bit of a it's a bit of a disrupted take on him. But what you've got now is Vite as this um, the the uh, the epitome of this like democratic elite, your sort of um, pompous preening liberal who is perfectly happy just kind of overall the masses and like and you know the whole the insistence on him causing the whole blue wave and installing Redford and so on and so forth and and the way in which he's almost like a a parody of this kind of like technocratic liberal whereby um you know you know we'll go we'll kind of we'll keep you know the, the system in place we'll keep capitalism in place but we'll just kind of move towards this wonderful utopia where you know technology makes everything fantastic and all of that like that's that's kind of being so pushed in the show and something that I was thinking about when I was uh, talking about this uh, the other day I just, I just got one, one thing one, one thing to say here is that um what it's actually what I like about it is that it's getting at the aspect of Vi, which is um, the embodiment of something that is very much a real tendency in, uh, I'm trying to phrase this in the, the least um, crude manner possible, but um, you know, you know Mo you know how he sometimes tweets things about how, like, well, if these racist white working class people, you know, just want to have, you know, cruelty and racism and all of this stuff, then, oh, they deserve to die under Trump's policies. They deserve to die. It would be better if they were all just, just gone. I think there is, um, and not even just that, actually. I think, uh, simultaneously, you know, maybe elsewhere on the, the spectrum, you've also got people who, if you say, if you try to talk to them about uh, the fact, like, Obama drone bombed a load of people, or just the general the the baseline for an american president being like all kinds of murders and atrocities and stuff they say things like well you know we don't live in the care bears land this is the real world you have to make tough choices sometimes and the okay the top, what i'm trying to get at here is i think there is very much a tendency in this mainstream politics of um an ends justify the means mentality um giving way to this almost this suppressed murderous impulse this idea that well you know maybe you know if the current system stays in place then we will just have to make some horrific final choices someday we would just kill a bunch of people in, to immediately bring forth utopia and yeah and i think that's kind of maybe unintentionally that's quite damning of the status quo if you you can't think of a way to defend it other than unbelievable atrocity okay uh, that's my 60 second soapbox over oh it's fine i was just gonna say it's a lot more uh along those same lines in fact it's very much more tony stark ish yeah than uh you know strictly um um God, I don't know the Charlton's character that he's based on. <laughs> I mean, that's that's great, actually. That really links it to the present wave of exactly stuff, yeah. doesn't it? Oh, and uh, another uh, interesting thing about uh, sort of the intersection of uh, personal psychology and greater social change: uh, the mention of uh, genetic trauma. This episode bringing us back to that. Which really ties back in with the entire, um, with everything going on with the A-bars, and... I'm wondering, is that going to be pr principally metaphorical? <laughs> or are they going to use that as an actual plot point? Like, Angela literally inherited the trauma in her DNA. I feel it might be stronger if they focus on the way in which socially and materially these traumas get passed down. Rather than say, oh, I've got trauma I'd in prefer my DNA. That. Yeah, I... But I, then... Well... You're about so, to say it's Damon Lindelof. Well, no? more okay. than that, are we... Well, yes, one, it's Damon Lindelof. Two, are we going to talk about the implicit Holocaust denial in this episode? Yeah, well, that whole um, determinism <laughs> thing you were talking about, um, like, that's all... Great way to just skip past it. No, no, I'm... I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> no, it's fine. 
background. That's that's in the um the Schindler's List thing. Like the idea yes, that exactly. um it's very cynical that Spielberg just would have done the um black white red girl thing, you know, regardless of the topic matter. <laughs> I, I I found that like a I don't know if it was meant to, but I found that an amazing jab at like the um the schmaltiness of well the arguable schmaltiness of films like that or Spielberg style in general. Like the idea that I know it might have just been meant as like a world building alternate you know thing but I, I find that um cynical in the extreme interestingly and you know that's about the holocaust yeah. before we get back to holocaust denial i just want to uh, just the this thing i wonder if that's maybe more of a comment on how if something like the squid happens in america you have the it almost like it replaces the holocaust for people perhaps yeah. or at least for americans it's already americans are like it's that. already replaced the, it's already replaced 9-11 too I mean, you know, it's 9-11 is essentially that real world's version of the squid, isn't it? Well, apart from the yeah. bit where it's... <clears throat> uh, <yeah>. Not you <laughs> too. Hey, did you, did you guys see that Lin*****s tweet? Yeah. yeah. No. <laughs> I think there's so much you can unpack about, like, the comparison between 9-11 and the squid. It's, it's a mess. <laughs> What'd she say, though? Basically, she insinuated that the show is leaning hard into 9-11 trutherism. And well, no one's duh. talking about it in the reviews, and we need to, we want you to cancel the show now, because it's, yeah, that's what I mean, Lindelof is a credited writer on Star Trek Into Darkness, so, I mean, I can't, I can't open my can again, probably I should have saved it for that, but yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not like it's a big mystery. Do, do, do you guys remember what the um, Into Darkness link is there, or is the film so forgettable you've forgotten the I've never watched that stuff? film, so please yeah, enlighten me. It's a, it's a truther movie. Oh. Yeah, it's uh, okay. Starfleet... Um, uh, False Flags. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's 9-11, except uh, Khan is um, Osama Bin Laden. Right. Well, yeah, on the subject of Damon Lindelof, he's also got writing credit on Prometheus, which is basically like uh, humanity trutherism, or at least you know, alien mm-hmm. trutherism. The engineer was actually just a humanoid all along, stuff like that. Anyway, I um, I think <laughs> I think the nine eleven comparison is it's it's um it's maybe unfair to accuse the show of nine eleven trutherism because a part of you know the, the book was written in so. the eighties and this is a sequel to the book. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah, there are going to be parallels. And, and it shows to write a sequel to Watchmen. Like, yeah, we knew yeah. Before it was going to be a sequel to Watchmen, it was already going to have these themes. We know that. It's, I mean, I don't, I, I'm treading on eggshells here because I'm apparently the only one who doesn't much care for Lindelof. Or at least, let me put it this way. I'm the only person, it seems, here who's not offended at the thought of Damon Lindelof being a truther, because I kind of went in thinking that already. <laughs> oh, okay. I wouldn't say I'm offended by that idea, I just find it a bit, I don't know, he's, he's, he's a, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a normie, <laughs> like, I don't know. A lot of normies are truthers. To do something with Watchmen post-2001 and not, like, pick up on the significance of 9-11 is just missing something glaring. But yeah, at, the same, exactly. at the same time, like, it's not doing a it's not a one-to-one squid equals 9-11 thing. Like, it's not really comparable, because the squid, the whole idea is that it's supposed to be an inexplicable, like, random act of cosmic just horror. Whereas, like, 9-11 was completely different. It's yeah, like a real historical event. You, 
there's geopolitical yeah. foundations to something like that. Like you can see the causal places something right. like that originated, whereas this yeah. would, you yeah. don't because that was you know an individualist act of mayhem done for you know one's own purposes. Yeah. Of course, Americans seem to have interpreted 9/11 retroactively as an inexplicable event with no clear and obvious causes. But yeah. That's On the one hand, yes, that too, especially in uh, American culture, 9/11 is pretty much uh, squid out of nowhere. But also. You have to remember that within the universe of Watchmen, uh, Ozymandias created the fiction of uh, the spatial um, experiments and all of that stuff. So, within the world of Watchmen, the squid itself is a reaction to various things which uh, the American government had been doing. yeah, of course, the technology shores. involved is only possible because of Manhattan and stuff. So it is all yeah. interlinked. Mm-hmm. When when we're tying this into a judgment on Lindelof's character, I think an amusing kind of irony is um, I, I think of him in much the same way as Snyder in that I find a lot interesting in their work. And I feel like if you separate the work a little more, it seems more noble and more um, profound than perhaps it was intended to be. But then when I hear them talk about it, sometimes I kind of wince if you know mm-hmm. what i mean but i yeah. think the more the on that on the truth of point i think the more interesting thing is when you look at stuff like uh prism or cambridge analytica or mk ultra or these kind of things the type of people that are predisposed to believe in these kinds of conspiracies is gig gig do you want to um word this better than i'm about to well, okay, yeah, I think um, part of the whole, I think, uh, Lindsay Ellis contention with accusing the show of encouraging 9-11 trutherism and stuff is that the show depicts how, um, in well, in the world of the show, the ones who are, uh, well, let's say, red-pilled about the squid being a hoax are, you know, the right-wing, this kind of, the clan, the racists, you know, the Rorschach yep. devotees, and that kind of perhaps speaks to a way in which, in, you know, the real world often, well, people who ha- nurse uh, conspiracy theories and so on and so forth, they are often, you know, on board with some kind of twisted kind of reactionary yeah. agenda as well, yeah. And um, even even in some cases where perhaps the conspiracy is not like entirely, you know, out of the realm of you know uh, possibility, the sheer like the basic level of just you know sheer distrust of all information, all sources, and everyone is often deeply embedded in you know the kind of the the reactionary mindset, and usually links to some other web of conspiracies they've drawn up about how you know the world is. Yeah. You know, controlled by you know the Illuminati and so on and so forth, and there's probably usually some racism, racism there too. I think um, there's there's something that feels right to me about the fact that Rorschach, despite you know being privy to the truth and trying to you know, perhaps nobly get it out there, he was such he was such a fucked up individual himself that the only people willing to you know countenance his disgustingness and his beliefs and the sources that you know he sent his stuff to were the absolute worst people. I think there's something very true about that and. And it's just and there's something that feels maybe karmically correct. I think it's it's in the spirit of what Moore was doing with the character. Yeah. It embodies that contradiction, which I really like. But again, I mean, Lindelof is a reactionary, so he probably wouldn't consider himself one. Well, <laughs> they often don't. Viewpoint. Yeah, exactly. He, he'd, he'd consider himself a radical liberal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> in, in that sense, I don't mean a radical like comma. You know, liberal. I mean, like he's a a radical centrist, more type. Not quite yes. that far, but that's his kind of um, conception. Like the whole liberal dystopia stuff. 
you've got to remember there's yeah. two other writers rooms that worked through making this show with them and so mm-hmm. I, I want to refrain from too much from like treating it as like the spawn of this one guy's opinions but at the same time you can see how at least they were the originating point for the world and for what's being done here they may well have been tempered into something better and more nuanced and interesting by the other writers you know we'll see in four weeks time are you guys familiar with that alan moore quote about um like conspiracy theories and how he essentially believes that the world is basically comprised of just multiple conspiracy theories all bumping into each other and intersecting and um you know into interlocking um, and how the world is essentially rudderless in that way. I feel like this episode was kind of like I was seeing that played out on screen because, I mean, you've got the sort of senior conspiracy of Veidt and his machinations and you've got this kind of um, sub-conspiracy of the cavalry and the, the Joaquin and you also have this counter-conspiracy going on which seems to be whatever um, Reeves and Lady True are doing and I feel like that's kind of really what uh, Wade is like faced with in this episode and that kind of causes his crisis to an extent. It's like, it's not one thing, it's sort of everyone operating behind his back, basically. It's just like an extension of um, the not top, like stealing his pants and running away, basically, except on a much, much larger scale. I think to, to um, elaborate on that slightly, I think it's maybe even a bit deeper than that because um, before being exposed to the truth in this episode, Wade obviously believes all the mythos about you know other dimensions and the squid and stuff. And I think you could, you could maybe say that people who have kind of been sold the squid myth have taken that as like, you know, maybe a fact or something, something that they know to be true about their universe that they can sort of maybe cling to a bit or at least look at as like, okay, well, this is what's going on. And and that whole Moore quote, I think he um, more talked about how people use kind of their theories of like there being some big overall plan as something to latch onto, to make to make the world seem like it has order or meaning or you know structure to it or that it's all going somewhere which of course you know with the truth being that actually you know it's rudderless and it's no, nothing's coordinated and so on and so forth so you know wade he you know he very much believes that you know that, that there are other dimensions and so on and so forth and that's all just been completely shattered because the truth is so much more mundane and small and hopeless almost than perhaps he was ever prepared for yeah it's very much the same sort of uh, revelation that Rorschach has in, uh, you know, he knows what cats know that makes them scream, like, or whatever it was that he said. Yeah, speaking of uh, Rorschach parallels, um, Wade was eating beans with his mask off yeah. on while uh, watching <laughs> American Hero Story with a very Which took a turn. Oh, yeah, boy. yeah, I mean, I must Honest- have found that hysterical. <laughs> Yeah, honest to God, my facial expression was exactly the same as his. Sort of a, wait, what? Is this still, what What show is he watching? <laughs> so apparently Ryan Murphy really goes for it over there. I think the key shot of that sequence is like the self-opening bean can opener. Because like, I think that kind of sums <laughs> up Wade. Like, he is... A mirror image of Rorschach, but whereas Rorschach is totally, like, self-reliant and self-motivated, Wade is entirely and, like, tragically reliant on, like, external things, like, um, 
the reflectanium, yeah. whatever it's called. Yeah, he's going to be protecting himself the reflector team. Yeah, the alarms and everything. I, th I think people are misreading his um, lie detecting skills because I think it all comes across in that scene where he can see through like the two lies the cavalry woman says, but he can't see the huge lie she's trapping him in. And it's, uh, I, f I feel like it's being overestimated and misunderstood the idea. It's like, it's a epistemological crisis he has. That's why at the end he takes the box back, even though he knows it's not true. It's because he needs some kind of truth, even if it's a false one, just to, you know, like operate on. He needs some axioms for like his, his worldview. That's why he asks, is anything true? It's, I, it, yeah, so I feel like. It's kind of a fake news thing, but it's a much more nuanced take than, you know, oh, news is getting faked, that's bad, it's crazy these days. It's that, you know, it's like the Alan Moore thing, people need these narratives to function because the world's too big and too complicated and um, draining, you know, to attempt to understand otherwise. Yeah, his whole thing is detecting cultural biases, but he seems like totally unprepared to accept his own biases or like neuroses. Yeah, like his his um, ex-wife that, you know, he, he vaunts how he can tell lies and that, but he could never see that she wasn't going to do what the girl did to him in the 80s. She wasn't going to run off with his clothes or anything. Do we think that uh, within the story, the implication is supposed to be that he has psychic powers from, as a result of this I thought explosion? about it. I didn't I'm thinking that, no. I, I, I sort of got that impression. Because we know that uh, again, in the universe of Watchmen, psychics exist, and specifically psychics who are supposed to be um, most affected by the squid uh, explosion, if I recall. Like, they would be waking up all over the world in terrible nightmares. See, um, the thing... See, I was actually... I was entertaining the um, Is Wade psychic kind of theory, but thinking about it, like, in this episode, if he if he was even capable of, like, picking up low-level psychic waves or whatever, the whole plot with that woman kind of seducing him into, you know, the cavalry's lair, like, it, it wouldn't have worked, would it? Not like, necessarily. I mean, well, as long as... Well, eh. because he's... They're presenting it as, like, a, you know, a binary. Is this particular thing true or not. Although now that you now that I think about it, he also wears a material that's supposed to block psychic powers at all times, so I guess that wouldn't make much sense for him to be a psychic cop then. I thought that was a very good point. <laughs> as far as the um reflected teen stuff goes and how, you know, like at that uh, what do you call those things when everyone sits in a room and they like share how they feel? Uh, podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean, like just seminars, like just group, just, uh, group, just um, uh, gr group therapy, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in his in his um group therapy that were called the Friends of Nemo. That's because the title of the episodes are reference to um Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, and there's a line in that that says, "If there were no thunder, men would have little fear of lightning," which you know the it's obvious how that relates to the episode, and so that's like the Nemo connection because Nemo's you know, in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Also, Nemo killed a squid. Yeah, giant squid. Yeah, yeah. Um, speaking of group therapy, this was kind of just an episode of The Leftovers, wasn't it? Very similar. Yeah. Um, because, like, while I was watching it, I was thinking of a very specific episode of Leftovers, which I know Mirrors hasn't seen it, so I won't go into specifics, but basically it it's focuses okay. on a character who hosts... 
post group therapy sessions. Yeah. And sure enough, I looked it up after and uh, the writer of this episode, her sole credit for The Leftovers was that group therapy episode. So I think they they pretty much knew exactly what they wanted from this episode. And like that they writer, Carly Rae, her um, Thrones spinoff never got greenlit and I was really sore about it because she's a great writer. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, and plus just the fact that it's like a huge event which happens in October which sort of sends the world into a state of grief. It's very like, I never made the connection between the departure and the squid before, but like, it seems really obvious to me now. Like, yeah. I think if you've watched The Leftovers, it actually maybe um, doesn't do this episode of Watchmen that many favours because I think if you if you're attuned to expecting those beats and that structure, like you know, okay, single character focused episode, story from their past, links to some making some key decision at the end of the episode. It's like, and you know, and the final scene will be some statement about you know resolving their character or whatever. Like you can kind of you can kind of see the beats coming, and even like the the use of music as well, like the various versions of Careless. Yeah. kind of the using kind of recognizable pop culture cues to kind of comment on character and stuff it is also saturated in leftovers and it's great and certainly um i think maybe it seems more novel and kind of searingly original if you kind of never watched their leftovers but it's it's kind of right. it's very much Lind- it's the wheelhouse of lindelof i was thinking like this this first tier watchman episode is a lot like a second tier leftovers episode <laughs> which is great you know but yeah it is what it is if you've seen Lost as well, it all stacks because it's the same bag of tricks. Yeah, it's not that dissimilar yeah. from stuff that happens in Watchmen too. Yeah, I seem to remember hearing that he he describes Watchmen as sort of like the that's how he learned to write, kind of. Yeah, well, that's yeah the um character backs like Watchmen was plotted out for six issues, but it's twelve issues, and that's because six of them are used as like solo character episodes like backstories delves into individuals so do you think that after we've gotten our first wade spotlight episode do you think that he is dead yeah as per the suggestion no, at the end yeah i don't think too. so i kind of hope so as well like in a very macabre way because i feel like even though we've basically just met him i feel like we've already seen like his end, he's uh, he's a know? tulsa cop and he's like a bunker freak i think he'll be very prepared for a home invasion he seemed like he was in a very vulnerable state at the end though also, he just got in, like, I don't know, like, he seemed very prepared for squid attacks, at least. I don't know about physical attacks. I mean, he joined after the White Knight, like, I assume he knows. Yeah. If it turned out that he was dead after this, I would not feel like I was robbed, no, I wouldn't you know? either, but I don't think Honestly, it seemed, to me, it seemed equally like he was prepared for it. Like, on some level, he knew that what he was, the real choice he was making was whether it would be Angela or his house that got the uh, yeah. truck full of rednecks. Yeah, I think um, the cutting the cutting it off where they did, they certainly, they want us to speculate about whether or not he's dead. I don't think, like, <laughs> I don't want to, well, this reminds me of another episode of The Leftovers, actually, where a character, it seems to be ambiguously whether they're alive or dead at the end of the episode, but let's not go there. Yes. Um, I think, uh, I'm not, I, I don't think I'll feel robbed regardless of which outcome. I'm kind of... 
yeah, I think he could go either way. I, <laughs> there's something really sad about him if he's dead at this point. It's just, oh, it's really sad. And But I can totally see it because we just had such a great encapsulation of kind of who he is. And and his and that decision that he makes at the end of this episode, you know, that's clearly pivotal because, you know, yeah. that will lead us to Angela's whole thing with nostalgia next week. So, yeah, I, I you know, he might, his time might be up. I don't know. If we're talking predictions, I'm parking this now that what... True and Will Reeves are doing is so nostalgia's memories coded into pills. Um, I think they want to drop an empathy bomb on the country where they use some form of nostalgia or something to make people live through memories of people that aren't like the Seventh Cavalry to try and force a change in worldview or some such. Oh, you think that's maybe what the uh, memory that her daughter is having? Yeah, it could be. Like, in this case, you know, that could be why she needs Will, because Will is a survivor of the, the Tulsa Massacre, for example. So I don't know if, like... Yeah. I, yeah, I don't know if they're going after specific instances of, like, historical trauma, just getting a huge, huge like, mishmash of various ones, but, um... Oh, yeah, that that's does what seem... the thing does. That's the thing? The, the, the clock does, that's what the clock does. The launch mode, yeah. Ooh, yeah, 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 I didn't think about the clock, actually. Oh, maybe maybe that's to do with um. You know, they describe the clock as a, it tells time. Maybe that's a very tortured metaphor for showing people uh, the past, perhaps. Yeah. Like okay, yeah. Uh, there might be a stretch, but you know. No, I like that. And what about um the sort of like lithium watch um cocktail that the cavalry are brewing up? Could that be like some sort of counter mixture? No, but it's excellent foreshadowing, though. That's what it is. It's foreshadowing. A cancer bomb becoming an empathy bomb by the end of the story. It's a mirror uh, backwards and forwards across the story. Yeah, it's. I'm seeing like warring conspiracies and I think it's very interesting. Yeah. Fearful Symmetry. Yeah. Fifth episode, fifth issue, the Fearful Symmetry mirror connection. Yeah. You could still, yeah. it, it, I mean, technically it could still sort of function as a like a time machine. You would be able to suddenly download, you know, decades or hundreds of years of memories into everybody's heads. That would be pretty traumatic, that would be pretty significant. And it would essentially be giving people that Dr. Manhattan vision from yeah, the chapter in the, in the book. Is that's kind that's kind of that might be how it all links together and such. I just want to point out um, when it comes to nostalgia and giving people it, particularly giving people it non-consensually. Um, this week on the website, there's a little file that includes some of the side effects of nostalgia, and um, obviously it's uh, it's not going to be pretty if you take someone else's nostalgia in like a. A hefty dose mm -hmm. and um, among the various side effects they mentioned like kind of um, random erections and things like that and all sorts of horrible things and psychosis and stuff um, one thing they specifically say is that if you ingest someone else's nostalgia you experience things like hyperactive empathy and also something they specifically say is that it dissolves the boundary between self and other and they even capitalize the word other to point out that it's like the philosophical sense of other and like the sort of the, the post-colonial sense oh, so it's like get, uh... yeah it, it's human instrumentality. <laughs> yeah, you can put it that way, you know? Everyone's oh my god, that's exactly... Into... Wow, there, now there is a direction. Now that would be a fantastic crossover. <laughs> yeah, it'll be uh, the new end of Evangelion to make up for the fact that Rebuild 3.1 isn't going to be that 
anyway, let's take it back from the weeaboo dimension. Um, I think, yeah, I think it's that's, there's an easy way to see how this empathy bomb could, perhaps on top of achieving whatever Will and True wanted to achieve, it could also be as apocalyptic and traumatic an event as the squid, almost. Or maybe not quite as, but certainly in that in that kind of ballpark because it could it could screw with people hugely yeah it's gonna be great speaking of time travel what did you think of Veidt's tape recorded in 1985 uh, I liked the uh, I liked the I assume makeup they did that plus the uh, video filter helped de-age him a bit I think they should have went he further he doesn't look exactly like he did back then cause, but mostly that's because Jeremy Irons was very thin and had dark hair back then. So seeing him looking a bit more like comic Ozymandias was odd. I always thought that comic Ozymandias looked like William Hurt. Yeah. His delivery was gorgeous in that speech. <laughs> yeah, the speech is very entertaining. I think... um. The whole, the tape thing, it did, something about it did annoy me a bit, because the show had been so good about not really showing us stuff from the kind of comic time frame, per se, that the comic imagery might, uh, you know, contradict in some way. So seeing kind of Iron's sort of like slightly half-acidly retrofitted as comic Ozymandias, complete <laughs> with like, you know, and Jeremy Iron's not really trying to sound younger at all very much, and only looking like a little bit younger, still being very much wrinkly, still having his current weird kind of haggard quasi English accent from the present day time frame it all rang a bit uh, strangely for me but like it's it's not a massive bugbear I have with uh, the the sequence really because you know you know it's 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 made up right it's fiction you know they can't physically they can't actually de-age Jeremy Irons like it's 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 this isn't it's, Marvel uh, yeah it's <laughs> um and it is, um, and his his delivery of the whole thing is very entertaining. But it's kind of, it does break the the magic of it a bit for me. For them to kind of outright kind of go and show like Ozymandias twenty four hours before he launches the squid and have it not quite click with the comic. That's the sort of thing they've been very good about avoiding so far. I don't buy the 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 tape is like um, how Rorschach's journal was received. In that, I don't agree with this as far as like the comic goes like i don't buy um Rorschach's journal being received the way it was in the show i don't buy Vite making evidence like that tape but i'm perfectly happy to accept it just because that's it's very difficult to make something fit completely into an existing thing that isn't set up at all for sequels or spin-offs so there's some jiggery pogery that has to be done and I, i'm i'm totally fine with it but I don't buy it, like, in the comic sense. This is a canon bubble situation <laughs> for me. I, I'm fine with the idea of a fight. I mean, because the plan... Oh, yeah, that was fantastic. It kind of doesn't make any sense at all, unless you assume that there's he has further, but that he's going to further influence uh, the uh, major players afterwards. I'm sure that the that the Kremlin has an identical tape in Russian, probably delivered personally by Vite because, of course, he can speak Russian. I'm sure. 
I think there's one thing that maybe you can materially object to it about, which is that in the comic, um, Veidt's whole thing is that he, he's modelling himself on Alexander the Great, and specifically the idea of cutting the Gordian knot, which is to say solving the problem by just slicing through it in one fell swoop and just having this utterly unassailable, you know, perfect you know plan that will you know, solve everything. And for the show to be kind of like retconning that and saying that, well, actually, he also extended it into a ton of micromanaging because he wanted to also manipulate the entire you know, yeah, future as well fair, as yeah. just his plan. Like, as much as, like, it's, um, this isn't a complaint on my part, because as much as it perhaps does not honour what we are told about uh, Veidt's character in the comic, it sort of undercuts his ideology to an extent, and I think there's there's a there's a there's a point to that. Like there's it's kind of politically loaded in the sense it's saying, well actually, you know, maybe he was not even honouring that himself at the time. Like what if that was all bullshit from the start? And certainly, you know, that might not be what Alan Moore was thinking or, or Dave Gibbons at all, but like certainly um it fits for this version of the show and you can kind of and also it's kind of funny. Like I think what actually sold it for me was the gag at the end, which is that the tape is several hours long and yeah. it involves like just monologuing for hours and hours about every last detail like that's, that's, so, that's so extravagant at that point that you have to just kind of go with it yeah and of course he made sure to deliver yeah <laughs> yeah and of course he made sure to deliver it well after the they had any chance of affecting the outcome <laughs> yeah I did it seven years ago <laughs> I really wish he had dropped that line in as stupid and fanboyish as it would have been would have been hilarious, but I appreciate that we managed to get in, and I did it! I did it! We had The End Is Nigh, A Stronger Loving World, The Architect yeah. shout out. I think my favourite Irons moment, personally, was when he was launching out of the catapult, just his face of glee as he was flying through the <laughs> yes. air. It's just hysterical. Yeah, I love all the imagery with his stuff, but um, I think you've missed the most um, relevant quote from the book in this week's episode. I leave it entirely when, um, in your hands? Yes, that. Yeah. It's like, it sort of lays it bare that, like, Looking Glass, even though he's been presented to us as this sort of, like, cool, mysterious, like, sort of a character, like, out of a Western, you know, man of constant sorrow, whatever, he's actually just, like, Seymour. Like, he's the average Joe. Like, in a way, he's us. He's, like, the totally, um, just wrecked by, like, circumstances and being a cog in the machine and, um you know, completely um, just out yeah, of action. So good. You know something I hated? Yeah. Because I think we're ladling on too much positivity. Those flashbacks so to, like, Wade's hat when the therapy yeah. said not as, you know, <laughs> with magic tinfoil. Like, oh, the one at the end that was just showing his, like, daily routine, I think was fine. But the other ones where it's like, oh, you remember this, don't you? If you've seen the um, first episode of The Wire, there's a really similar thing there, which David Simon like absolutely seethes over but HBO forced him to put in just like a flashback literalizing you remember what this is pertaining to don't you I, f I find it condescending and it makes me roll my eyes but there were only like two I think bad ones in the episode I was I was okay I was okay with the one about um you're afraid that I was gonna run away with your clothes because even though it's hackneyed and really ham-handed on the other hand it is it still fits with the idea of it being like a traumatic flashback that he has mm. just at the literally that she triggered that flashback for him but the rest of it is just ugh, reminding yeah, us of shit that happened 15 ridiculous. minutes ago yeah 
I took it as kind of like Wade sort of suffers from intrusive thoughts, just like probably, yeah. you know. Again, psychic. <laughs> but I think it could have been done better, you know. Yeah, I think if 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 there's ambiguity over whether it's a character point or whether you're just talking down to the audience, you know, something's gone wrong. You know, I think you can communicate yeah. stuff like you know, intrusive thoughts and so on in a way that is perhaps you know even subtler and kind of and is telling in its own way rather than just sort of crudely cutting to stuff. Having said that, on the editing point, I do like the little montage towards the end where you know his yeah. his world has been shattered and he's just flashing back to everything at once, including the the squid and pretty much everything. Like and while Kel- acoustic cover of Keller's was but plays in the background. What do you think of the splicing animal DNA, incineration, all that stuff? Yes. Oh yeah, and pet cloning. Yeah. That was great. That was very. Did you notice the um? Did you notice the receptionists were clones as well? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was creepy. Everybody, and a whole bunch. Yeah, everybody in the place was was a twin, and there everybody had like two copies of dogs. It was weird. But it makes me think they're building up to something with the clones. Yeah. As well. Like, maybe on top of the nostalgia bomb, they could, like, literally bring back, like, some people from the 20s. That would probably be a bit too much, but, like, I don't know. I feel like it's going somewhere. Um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure how the clones will end up playing into it, honestly. What if, uh... Oh, shit. What if... Now that you said that, they've been collecting DNA from everybody through the cultural centers. What if they're oh, going, yeah! What if they're going to clone back all the people who died in the Tulsa Massacre? I don't, it's That's... just what a weird fucking thought, but it's. Oh god, that's freaky. I mean, certainly, I, I I have been suspicious of the cultural center when when Angela broke into it, and I think uh, episode four or whatever. They they the camera lingered very closely on the signpost, um, just outside the ancestry kind of family tree uh exhibit. There was a thing saying um funded generously by the legacy fund or whatever, and they didn't tell you what that is. Like I yeah. could really believe that being something that some shell company by Lady True or whatever. It's very transnational. Yeah, oh, that's such a that's a, oh, that's such a freaky idea. The idea they might bring back all the dead people. Oh God! Thing about, yeah. He talks to himself in the mirror and kind of at the that start when he's kind of berating himself for being a dummy and so on. And that reminded me of the hooded justice monologue earlier on in the series about how the mask is a way of almost melding with the person in the mirror and stuff like that. There's, yeah, I quite like that whole uh, dimension. Also, just another random observation. I noticed that even as an adult, he still calls himself a dummy. Like, mm-hmm. um, when he gets tricked by the, the lady. Yeah, that was a fun detail. It's just really well realised on the whole, very detailed. I really love the kind of stuff I, I personally picked up this episode was doing a little bit about, like, masculinity, sort of. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. He's focus test he talks about how like um a red-blooded oki like won't admit, admit that he's afraid sort of thing which i guess it's not strictly limited to masculinity because like even like the kids they'll lie about the cereal and like say it's good because they just don't want to rock the boat basically which i think is very easy to apply to like a larger political um stage but uh well no the kids are honest the kids say it doesn't taste like anything is that is that is that what happened? No, that, did, I thought yeah. I thought what happened was that like they said that it was fine, but Glass could tell that they, unless I'm completely no, that was the uh, first. No, you're one. Think, that was you're the... thinking of the um, you're thinking of the commercial for Come Back to New York, right? Okay. Guess, the yeah, atrocious the okay. <laughs> New York commercial. <laughs> Edit that so I'm not a fucking idiot. <laughs> but, um, 
yeah, no. No, no, no. We have to keep in all Tom to desk. <laughs> but no, <laughs> my point still stands that like people doing surveys and shit, they will just like tick the strongly agree to yeah. not disrupt like the status quo, basically. And um obviously like the guy clearly has some issues with like sexuality as is made explicit with the wife and like I don't know, you have to wonder what's going through his head like when he's actually watching the American hero story scene, you know. <laughs> did you guys notice the bunk bed in his little bunk yes, bed? Yes. Like, did. did you make his wife sleep on that thing and that's why she no. left oh, him? God. I think <laughs> no. well, maybe, yeah, but also I was getting the impression that that's the sort of thing you put together when you think you're gonna have kids and they don't seem oh. to have kids. So it could be that like they mentioned genetic trauma, he might have decided at some point that he just wasn't fit to have children. A lot of people who are tra- traumatized tend to make decisions like that. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I, did, I, did, I didn't think about it through the prism of uh, kids and legacy uh, to refer to episode four. Yeah, that's quite interesting. Uh, just a little random, uh, well, I've got uh, two little random things, actually. Um, we see uh, kind of the logo for the 7th Cavalry, so to speak, painted on the wall when um, Looking Glass invades their TV studio. And um, we'd seen this image before, not in the show, but on uh, the website in this old letter that Judd's grandfather had received. But there was a crucial difference um, in the original logo, in the old version of it. Where you've just got, you've got the creepy eye and you've got the circle. But in this new one that we see in the show, you can actually see that in the circle you've got um, a smaller kind of dot at the top of it to make it resemble a hydrogen atom. So it's like uh, it's like Doctor Manhattan's been incorporated into this racist imagery somehow. So that's got me wondering hey. what's going on there. How does he come? into it and separately this is something very strange that just occurred to me but um uh, the vite mentions in his tape that uh, he we're gonna create he's gonna maintain the piece by having additional smaller events so that's presumably you know the squid fall and i wondered that um keen keen jr says that his role along with judd was maintaining the peace, you know, in uh, with the 7th Cavalry in Tulsa and so on. And I wonder, could that explain the traffic stop shooting and, you know, the, the videotape that the cops received in the first episode? The, the, the whole, uh, that whole thing, could that have been, could, is that basically the, the equivalent of one of the tiny squid falls? An incident that they deliberately set up with, you know, the non-lethal uh, shooting of an officer and the distribution of that videotape to create this constant, uh kind of fake fake kind of atmosphere of conflict i don't know it just seems like there could be something there so they don't have restrictions on their guns basically because that's the justification Mm. in episode one for like taking the restrictions off yeah now they're uh now they're good point this is it's a it's a uh cause for war i'm saying that because i never remember how to pronounce the latin for that yeah, whereas the the murder of Judd seems to be like throwing a spanner into the whole thing, but it might just be part of the overall plan. Like I really, I don't know whose conspiracy killing Judd fits into, because if it was if it was orchestrated by you know his wife or something because he betrayed the cause, that's one thing. But if it was done by you know Will, for example, Lady True, then it's the other thing. So it's still it's very much up in the air. I like the uh, ambiguity of this whole mystery. Okay, uh, number one thing, um, uh, I'm glad to see that uh, Panda is a. Uh dedicated follower of who cares and we'd like to have him on sometime 
just one more thing I loved and want to draw attention to. Um, in the American Hero Story segment, um, during the uh, sex scene between Hunter Justice and Captain Metropolis, um, the camera shows um, them in the act being reflected in that, uh, whatever it was, that reflective thingy. And that's um, actually, that's actually, it's a clear and deliberate um, reference to um, the panel in the comic where the comedian's assault of, um, of uh, Silk Spectre is kind of shown in the lens of that, uh, that presumably the same thing. And the reason I, um, the reason I know it's a reference is because in PTpedia this week, Dale PT has his little, he goes on this whole verge fest about the show and the exploitative way in which it depicts uh, the comedian incident in a way that is a very thinly veiled way for some writer to kind of go after Alan Moore for how he framed the assault in the comic. Um, I just found the, the, the whole sex bit and the, the, the way in which um, Hooded Justice kind of brusquely shoving down like, you're never going to see my face doing his Batman voice. Yes. Which is so funny. I just... I, it's just, it really captures just the idea of just some um, kind of edgy attempt at showing the cliche kind of gay dynamic where you have this sensitive bottom and like their toxic masculine top who's kind of probably straight acting in regular life as well. It's just, oh, that's just so funny. I love that. I really, really want to find out what Will's whole story is with the hooded justice homosexuality thing. I really want oh, to yeah, know. me too. I cannot wait to find out what's going on there because if they did totally straightwash him, that will be the worst thing ever. But I really hope <laughs> it's. Uh, I really hope that that actually happened between him and uh, uh, whoever the hell that was. I can I can never remember the older uh, heroes to be honest. Yeah, well, Angela will certainly find out next week, one way or another. <laughs> yeah. Oh god, this... Maybe even first-hand. There could be a scene of her... Oh. Well, I'll keep that in my future. <laughs> Gosh, the mind races.